Welcome, my esteemed guests, to the humble house of hope. Here we encourage you to listen to more monsters, madness, and magic, lest your stay be permanently extended. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Andrew Wincott about being heckled on stage, hammer horror films, playing a devil, singing his own theme song as Raphael, (laughs) Baldur's Gate 3, and more. As always, thank you for listening out there. And if you'd like to help the show grow and you're listening on your podcasting platform of choice, please leave us a review. If you happen to be watching the video on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, you know the deal. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Boils and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Andrew, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? (laughs) A little bit of all the above. Book reader for sure, and fort builder, I can remember doing that, and a little bit of trouble from time to time. (laughs) What would life be without trouble? Indeed. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Oxfordshire, about 20 miles north of Oxford in the UK. Part of that time I was in the country. I was outside outside a small town. So a lot of places to build forts. A lot of places to build forts. A lot of places to tear down forts, too. (laughs) (laughs) Tear them down. You mentioned you were a book reader. Did you have a maybe a a writer or a genre that you leaned towards as a kid? Fantasy kid, maybe? Did you say fantasy? Mm Mm-hmm. Funny you should say that. Well, there's, yeah, an element of fantasy, but I went through different phases. So I went through a Biggles phase, you know, mm. plane flying, and I went through a Marvel Marvel Comics phase, you know. Loved getting into all that. So people could call that fantasy. So, but but then but then as I grew up, then uh, you know, graduated onto onto other things, and then discovered Dickens at school and multiple narrative storytelling, and then ended up reading English at university. That was my youth. Misspent, some might call it. <laughs> Others would say no. So were either your parents, were they artistically inclined at all or involved in the business? Do you think that's where sort of your roots came from regarding that? Only temperamentally, I'd say. They loved the theater. They would go to the theater a lot, but they were also... I went away to school, so from the age of about 13, I was going on theatre trips with, with the school. But yeah, they loved stories and uh, movies, but, but they were hardworking people. Yeah, I went to school and um, did drama, studied acting. Well, at school, I did, did school plays. Tended to excel in the artistic subjects like English and history, and then studied Red English at, at Oxford at university, and, and did a lot of plays there. So that's 
in a nutshell, that is that is my background. So uh, what sort of music was playing around the house when you were growing up? Ooh, ooh. Well, all kinds, really. But when I was at school, the soundtrack to my youth really was, I mean, I grew up in the 70s. So we're really talking Pink Floyd. We're talking Dark Side of the Moon. We're talking Led Zeppelin. We're talking even Deep Purple. We're talking Simon and Garfunkel. This was the soundtrack to my growing up. But Pink Floyd, huge, uh, huge. I remember when Wish You Were Here came out and then Animals and then The Wall. I mean, this was amazing stuff. Dark Side <laughs> was unbelievable. I think it's actually the 50th. You would know this probably. I think it's the 50th anniversary year, isn't it, of Dark Side? I believe so. And I know this. Uh, I know it's the 50th year of the the anniversary of the Scorpions. And they're about the, it's about the same year that they uh, that they started. So it probably is yeah. in the ballpark. Yeah, I read or heard that when they recorded Dark Side at Abbey Road, in the next studio, Paul McCartney and Wings were recording Band on the Run. How about that? They had any idea at the time. (laughs) Who knew? Exactly. Impressive session musicians on that as well, I think. Did you ever pick up instrument yourself at all or anything like that? I played guitar, but I actually learned classical guitar in my teens when I was at school. Yeah. Awesome. Do you still play? Yes, uh, well, not as much as I should. In fact, I've been thinking you, you must really pick up that guitar again because you're going to forget how to move move your fingers <laughs> on that fretboard if you don't. But yeah, one of the pieces I learned to play, which was really above my pay grade, was the Villa Lobos, Villa Lobos, Prelude Number no. One in E minor, which was impressive. But it was. Uh, I just thought I, I'm going to learn to play this. I was really only grade five standard, but I got a grasp of the Villa Lobos. And in fact, I brought a guitar. I went to Madrid because I shared a study room with a Colombian guy who lived in Madrid. I went over to Madrid one summer and I bought a classical guitar and brought it back. And it was just something about the tone of this guitar. I thought, this is terrific. And I've still got it. Yeah, when I was about 15, I got this guitar. Beautiful, beautiful tone. Did you ever join any bands? Only in a very casual way. Mm. Love to have done more. Yeah, I, I did a bit of that, a bit of folk playing and things and, mm. and songwriting, but only on a, a very casual kind of way. Yeah, same. I uh, I stuck to the bass because there was only four strings. Couldn't get too confused on it. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, when you think back to formative films and TV shows you grew up on, what comes to mind? Wow. Well, I mean, again, I'm going back to this. When I go back to the 60s, I remember the, all the Jerry Anderson or the puppet shows, Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. But there were all there's all kinds of early early kids television. But but they were they were huge. I mean, I remember all these the, the different voices and I was impressed by all the voice acting. And then it, when you get older you realise it's just a handful of guys who are just incredibly versatile. Yeah. Mel Blank style. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, and things like Laurel and Hardy. I adored Laurel and Hardy way out west what a treat and then during school holidays they would show on english television they'd show seasons of classic movies and of course i also went to when i was a kid saturday morning pictures you'd have a you'd always have some kind of movie showing as well as a serialized thing and an animated stuff but yeah they'd classic classic film series on the bbc the all the astaire rogers they did one christmas all those classic films, Wing Time and Top Hat, you know, the comedy, but also the artistry of it. And then I became a big fan of film noir and still great films of the 40s, Double Indemnity. All the films of Billy Wilder, The Apartment is another one of my favorites. Bittersweet, funny as hell, but dark, cynical, biting, <laughs> biting wit. So Andrew, this is a question I like to ask everyone just because you never know with someone's background. Uh, what scared you as a kid? Ooh, everything. 
I can agree with it. <laughs> my teachers at school. But no, I mean, things like the supernatural, the, you know, ghosts, you know, all of these things were, you know, what you'd get a bit obsessed with. with I got a bit obsessed with hauntings and uh, uh, anything that fed the imagination, the dark side of the imagination. Did you dip your toe into any of the Hammer Horror films? Yeah. We, we used to, uh, again, on British TV, we'd have Hammer Horrors on Friday nights. You know, there was there would always be a horror movie on Friday nights. I'd, I would I would love those horror movies. You know, the, all the classic Christopher Lee, Dracula, mm. Peter Cushing, Donald Pleasance, <laughs> Donald Pleasance. Yeah, all the usual suspects turning yeah. up. All all those great, the Mummy. You know, the the early stuff. Um, those early portfolio, what are portmanteau films where you have multiple stories in one in one sort structure. of anthology type films. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a very early English Ealing comedy, not Ealing comedy, Ealing, I think it might be an Ealing film, not a comedy, but they made all these amazing comedies, like Kind Hearts and Coronets, which again, brilliant screenplay, funny, but dark too. Alec Guinness playing multiple parts, all the victims, and Dennis Price playing this very suave. He was a sort of disenfranchised aristocrat, so he was after his inheritance. But Ealing made, I think it's called Dead of Night, and it's about four or five horror stories ghost kind of supernatural stories of the supernatural it's amazing in fact i recently re-watched it michael redgrave plays a ventriloquist he's obsessed with his puppet seems to have a life of its own and to take him over take control of him that's wonderful michael redgrave is outstanding in that i'm not that familiar film. with that movie i'm writing it down to watch what a chase it. that one Dead of Night, I think if it's not, I'll check it, but I'm pretty certain it is. Made around about maybe the late 40s, maybe 1950. Googie Withers is in it, in another part of the story. It's got an amazing cast. One of the stories is about a, a mirror in which I think it's Googie Withers gives it to her husband in the film. And he can see, he starts to see a different reality in the mirror. And it changes him. He becomes this figure, this this other kind of brutal, sadistic man. And all of these are sort of 15, 20-minute short films within another very clever narrative structure which takes place in a sort of haunted house. I love the anthology, the wraparound stories around anthologies and how they tie them yeah. together. You'll love that then. While we're on the subject of uh, spooky things, did you were you a Twilight Zone kid or anything like that? A little bit, but not not much. Some. So, when it comes to acting specifically, do you have a maybe a eureka aha moment you can point to where your own interest arose and you thought, you know, I'd like to give that a try? Well, I suppose the first time I acted was when I went to school, and this is when I went to I was about sort of twelve, twelve, thirteen upwards. I mean, I'd done bits and pieces, and I was always good. At reading, I would read publicly. There was a certain amount of church background at the school. I would read the Bible, the King James Bible. The 17th century King James Bible is the language of Shakespeare. When I um, started to, to do Shakespeare, to study Shakespeare, I also started to act Shakespeare, but that was later. That was uh, when I was at university. The first plays I did at school were Patrick Hamilton's The Duke in Darkness, John Osborne's Luther, Bernard Shaw's The Devil's Disciple. So they were good classic plays, staple plays, pretty on the modern side. Playing Luther was pretty amazing, but I think it was The, the Duke in Darkness, the first one, which uh, really gave me a taste for it. I would say so. I was probably about 13, I think. Yeah. 
say I was about 13, and I played a jailer. It was a sort of medieval set piece. A duke was imprisoned, and I was his jailer. But in the end, I think he becomes instrumental in helping him escape. So it's one of those plays that doesn't get done. It's probably considered quite melodramatic, but it's popular in its day, probably in the 50s. Early on, or even now to this day, did you have to deal with stage fright? Not stage fright, but I've had moments where, really scary moments, in fact, I was only talking about this the other day, about two days ago, where for some reason or other you blank. And you can usually, in a way there's no explanation because it can happen to you at any time, but you try to rationalize it, you try to make sense of it. Why? Why? Why tonight? Why that line or whatever? But there was one occasion when I simply had rattled through all this text it was the second night of a theatrical production of the Aspen Papers. All these things I'm mentioning, I think Michael Redgrave's got a connection with. Isn't it weird? I must be channeling him. <laughs> yeah. <today. laughs> Michael Redgrave, there was this wonderful adaptation of the Aspen Papers. We did it in Rep Theatre in Colchester. And I played the main character who's a, who's a writer, but he's trying to get a hold of these letters that are thought to, that they're based on, the, they are the letters of a, a famous poet now dead safeguarded in a, by this um, mysterious old woman in a Venetian mansion. The poet, Geoffrey Aspen, would be based on Byron or Shelley, someone like that. My character's this critic trying to get these letters and publish them. The old woman says, you publishing scoundrel, at one point. Anyway, I had this, the, the opening scenes was an enormous amount of text and lines, speeches, and I was completely in control of it. But we got to the second night and I was supposed to produce a letter. And I got to the end of all these speeches, didn't produce the letter. Why? The actor on stage said, um, Harry, wasn't there a letter that you received? Oh, yeah, uh, yes, yes, Ellen, <laughs> then got back on track. It was very odd. It's like an out-of-body experience. In fact, when I started the, my first professional job, so I played Alec in Test the D'Urbervilles, we were touring the West Country in the UK, which was a wonderful, wonderful job. It's probably, it was my way of rep theatre, you know, where you'd have a play on one play a, a week. It wasn't like that, but we were playing different venues every night. So we were moving around. It was small to middle scale touring. Sometimes we would be in one place for a week or if we were lucky, two weeks. But mainly they were one nights, one night stand. We were village halls or sometimes purpose-built theatres. It was an incredible grounding in learning the whole business of acting in the theatre. Uh, you need different spaces acoustically. And in some ways, the best places were the, the village halls on the edge of Dartmoor or Exmoor, Chagford or Dulverton, these tiny places. You'd arrive in the, the afternoon. We didn't put the set up, but we did help to strike it at the end of the evening. So we were like a family on the road. We were doing this touring. This is about out-of-body experiences. And we got to Falmouth in Cornwall. I was heckled that night. I was hearing voices. <laughs> so I came on stage. Well, first of all, as, so every time I came on stage in the first, the first half of the play, I would start a line and I would hear, Arsehole! Somewhere, oh, no. somewhere around me. But nobody seemed to react. Nobody reacted in the audience. Nobody else on stage reacted. The feed line was something like, it might have been more judicious for the parson to have also mentioned the noble blood running through Jack Durberfield's veins. Because he's an asshole! Would come from nowhere. It was bizarre. It was, I felt, I'm hearing voices. I felt I was, my body was, or my spirit was levitating. Above this, I was looking down from a great height, dissociated. It yeah. was it was really, really bizarre experience. And I come off, I came off stage. And I said, y "Did you hear that?" 
Uh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we heard it. But the thing is, you can't do anything about it. You're in the middle of a show. I mean, I could have stopped and said, "Did you hear that? Did you hear? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that voice? Who said that?" And then you break through the fourth wall and you're into something else. So I thought that probably wasn't a good idea. You think the show must go on? Anyway, right. they got rid of it in the interval. <laughs> Somebody drunk had had latched onto the the company and followed them back into the theatre, and they thought he was part of the co- the company. I, I, I don't know. There's a whole sort of you know, mythology around this story now, but uh, but it was a it was an amazing experience, an out of body experience. You were doing something you know so well, and then suddenly you're hearing voices. Would you say heckling is common in uh, that sort of theater production? No, I wouldn't say it's common in, in British theater. Normally, everyone's very well behaved. But there are, have been stories recently of people wanting to sing along in musicals, and then that's spoiling it for everybody else. So then they, they're rejected from the theater. I've heard that story a couple of times. <laughs> Andrew, this is something I like to ask all actors when I have a chance. To the non-actors, like myself, you know, the layman's, I feel like the term method acting has become muddled. What is your method? That's a, a good question, because method is just a method, after all. Look, it's all about, I would say, it's all about the truth. What we're doing is we're looking for the truth. We're looking for the truth of a situation or of a character and how that character acts in that situation. So the essential question, we're investigators initially. We're explorers. We're looking for reasons. What? Who am I? What do I want? How am I going to get it? Those are the fundamental questions when you approach any role. Who, you can summarize it, who, what, where, when, why. Those are the questions. I guess that's my method. It probably does go back to Stanislavski. But I don't, it's, it's difficult if, you, if you're thinking of playing a character like Raphael. How do you study that as method? Right. But that's sort of at the root of it. Plus tradition is a huge part of it. I think Raphael's rooted for me in my early experiences in Jacobean theatre because he's a kind of 17th century character. Well, he's as old as time, if you want to look at it in that way. But but he there's something 17th... I, I see it as like uh, Milton's Lucifer in Paradise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, he comes from yeah. that tradition. So my method is also about placing things in time, in history, in that tradition, which helps enormously. You find the style of the character, the style the way he speaks, the way he moves. And that's all that's all rooted in theatre too. Olivier said, I think it was Olivier said, you get the shoes right, you'll get the movement right. And Gielgud famously said, style is knowing what kind of play you're in. <laughs> so <laughs> th- these, are, these are rather flip answers, but they're, they're revealing. But essentially we're, we're mining for the truth, the human condition. That underpins any any method, any approach. Some people work outside in, so I think Olivier preferred that way, and others want to work inside out. So they're, they're going deep inside the character and letting that inform all the other things. And I think it's a sort of mixture of the two. So when it comes to maybe work that you do that we won't see on the stage or the screen to build character, do you do anything like that? Like maybe just off the top of my head, maybe you make a journal or something like that for your character. I might make jottings of some kind. I might make some notes, but it's all in the in the script, in and around the script. Everything is rooted in the words on the page. 
and absorbing those words and respecting the words, living the words, letting the words become a part of you. That's if we're talking about theatre. To a lesser extent, that's also true of audiobooks. It's only lesser because there are so many words on the page and you're also inhabiting many different characters within the narrative. You're still looking for, you're sort of trying to get inside the storyteller and you're still looking for the truth of the of that of that of the storyteller's imagination through the storyteller through him or her you are accessing all these other multiple characters different voices within the one voice i will heavily note the scripts heavily annotate the scripts check things write down any thoughts but not a journal as such if i'm doing theater i will always have the script with me because if i'm standing in a queue anywhere you know you can just get the script out and even when you're running the play it's never far away you should always go back and refer to it i think even during a run so do you have any personal favorite roles that you played during your time on stage favorite roles well many of them i mean i mentioned alec in tess of the d'urbervilles i played the actor in the woman in black another ghost story that was an extraordinary experience because he's never really off stage and then there was another occasion i played jack in the rivals which i played in vienna but that was a, it was a it was a wonderful comedy. I love mm. doing comedy. Another character, another Neil Simon's play, Lost in Yonkers. I played a gangster, which was uh, not a part I'd normally be asked to play. <laughs> but I sort of discovered, you know, this is this is good. I was tapping into all those film noir, you see. Right. Found that liberating. And of course, once you start to find, once you find the voice for a character, for that sort of character, Louis, who's sort of a gangster, to these two boys his uncle to these two boys uncle Louis. once you find the voice then you then you start to move in a different way very interesting how the the voice led that one i would say and we had this amazing set it looked like a um an edward hopper set because it was set in new york in um in yonkers from the stage andrew was it your intention to break your way i know you said you were doing readings was it your intention to break your way into the voiceover side of things it's strange because the the work leads you you go where the work is and I started professionally, I, I trained as an actor in theatre, mainly classical theatre. And yes, I was doing Shakespeare and, uh, and have done a lot of Shakespeare and Shaw. But a few years after that, I was invited to audition for the BBC Radio Drama Company. We have a strong tradition of radio drama at the BBC. And at that time, it may still be true, they would audition you if you wrote in. It wasn't as if, well, we'll see you if we can, or no, sorry, we don't, no, couldn't, nothing doing today or for the rest of the year, thank you very much. No, they had to do it, it was an obligation. So I wrote and I got a letter back saying, yes, come along and audition. And I went along and put down some voices. You're invited to put down different characters, different styles, different ages of characters. So you think about, well, what can I do? How can I, what's my range here? And then you start to think about, well, you know, it's not just, I'm not just cast, castable in radio, according to the way I look. I can be anything my voice will enable me to be. It became very liberating and I was invited to join the radio drama company. And I was there for about 18 months. And after that became a freelance radio artist and worked a lot in, in radio for many years. They're not long, the individual freelance contracts aren't too time consuming, so you can fit them in around longer theater projects. 
doing the radio drama company was amazing. I mean, I can remember a 10 episode adaptation of David Copperfield we did. Each episode was an hour. They don't make them that long anymore, that detailed anymore. They're shorter, the episodes are shorter. And I played Steerforth in that. He's a kind of Raphael-like character. I really enjoyed getting into radio and out of that later came audio books and the games. The games started after that around which talking about 20 years ago probably no more than that 25 years the original broken sword and there are an awful lot of radio actors in that in fact there was a radio drama producer and he was directing all the voices but a number of us from the radio drama company past or present did some voices and i think i'm right in saying that was the first game that really took voices in computer games to the next level, to a, to a major level. The original Broken Sword, <laughs> around about 96, I would say. A few years after that, I started doing voices for games in a, in a big way. I know your first experience, correct me if I'm wrong, with Larian specifically was Divinity, right? Yes, I think that's right. Now, was there any motion capture for that role? No, the only motion capture I've done is Baldur's Gate 3. What was that experience like for you for the first well, time? Uh, well, it was a, it was extraordinary because I realized once I started, they said, oh, can you angle it slightly? And then suddenly I felt, okay, I'm acting in three dimensions here. This is like theater. Yeah. That was exactly how it felt. It felt like I was going back to theater, and especially with Raphael. I've heard that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but most motion capture folks I talk to say that the, they're surprised how similar the medium is to theater. It's interesting, yeah. That's exactly how I felt. And especially with Raphael's innate theatricality, I suddenly felt I was moving and gesturing exactly as I would have done on a stage. It suddenly felt it suddenly felt like being very much at home. On my very first session, I just got into the suit and the light receptors were put on me and I was wired and I thought, Oh, this is slightly strange. And then we were in the studios in Croydon, wired for sound, all set to go, and the fire alarm went off. Oh no, we have to evacuate the building. So <laughs> there I am in the, the Velcro getup, standing on Croydon High Street in the drizzle on a Monday morning. That was my introduction to motion capture. <laughs> Very high tech. That didn't last long. We were soon back back in studio. With the role of Raphael, was it the previous relationship that you had established with the studio, with Divinity? Did they bring you in or was it another audition process? It was another audition process. We were invited to put down some, have a go at different characters. This is as far as I can recall. We're going mm. back about four or four or five years now. I put something down. There may have been, I may have played characters that were similar, if there is anything similar to Raphael. I put something down and, and ended up being invited to play to play him just one of those times when you feel something clicks i meant to uh chime in with this earlier but raphael is almost built for theater did you pick up on that earlier um, when you uh picked up the character yeah i did feel the way he spoke his language was, was was very theatrical in a sort of 17th century sort of way there's an irony to him and a danger to him which is so much fun to play the way he teases and toys and to me yeah he goes back to a jacobean tradition shakespearean sort of tradition where the language and the sense of the irony and the danger together are very very close those villains if you like but they're charismatic villains they're popular the characters you love to hate or hate to love people are drawn to them those charismatic sort of characters are tremendous fun in the theater and in any medium 
You said villain, uh, which is interesting because I spoke with Neil Newbin recently. He plays a lot of quote-unquote villainous characters, and the way he approaches it, he says, is he he never judges his own character. So when he's playing, he never sees himself as a villain. Would you agree with that? I would. You can't see yourself as a villain. In a way, I'm just looking at Raphael in the role he fulfills in the game, and because he's the devil, you can't can't make... I can't make too many excuses for him, but he's just being himself. When you play a character like that, you look for ways in which you can identify with him. So you look for, it goes back to who he is, what motivates him, what drives him. And you try to explain, understand your character in in that way. So in that way, you don't judge you just explore. Raphael's difficult because can't re- I mean, he's the devil. He's the devil. Yeah, <laughs> that's the um, exception. You know, he's a nice devil. <laughs> you know, so you feel sorry for him. I don't know. You know, characters that aren't human. In well, we're now into well, what's human? No, right. We're, we're into a different. Maybe he's too human. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe that's the problem there. Yeah. And, I don't know, yeah, maybe it's the human side of him that's appealing. That's how he gets around people, by appealing to their humanity or by manipulating their humanity or what they need and desire. There's a great scene with Raphael in the game where during the actual battle with him where he's uh, singing his own song. (laughs) What do you make of that? I think it's Carlac is one of the other characters that breaks the fourth wall throughout the game. Mm -hmm. And it did take me, it took me out of the game for a second, but not in the negative way. It was more like a pleasant sort of uh, laughing moment. (laughs) Yeah. A a number of people have said they had to stop for 10 minutes. Yeah. Listen to this, (laughs) listen to the song and just get their heads around it because it is so out of left field, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, other people have said, oh, he's like a Disney villain. Other people say, well, of course, Raphael's going to have his own his own song. Yeah, of course <laughs> he is. <laughs> it's very fitting. Yeah, it's it was a master stroke uh, to do that. It was a good, it was a fun session to work on because Borislav was directing me remotely, talking me through it. He would say, yes, 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 you, yes, we have it. Just give the performance now. Yes, give that. Yes, that's right. I feel we're almost ready to go on stage now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was like we're about to do a musical. And Raphael's going to appear in a cloud of smoke through the trap door below, and you know, very <laughs> full cost, big number. So, Andrew, since the game has launched, do you have a, a whole a personal holy shit moment to where you've realized just how big this thing is? You know, it's one of the biggest gaming releases of all time. Does seem to be, doesn't it? I think it's, for me, it's been a gradual realizing of just how big this game is. I think we knew it was going to be, it was going to be big, and we, we but we didn't know how big. Uh, I didn't, I for sure, I had no idea. I, perhaps I still don't know. Perhaps it's, <laughs> I'm still realizing, but, it, but everybody seems to be talking about it. It's winning every award possible. It's doing so well. It's sweeping the board. Multiple awards, multiple, multiple awards platforms. It's extraordinary. Now, I was talking to somebody at Games Workshop, actually, a few months ago in Nottingham, who were, who were behind Warhammer, Warhammer 40K and Age of Sigmar. You might know about, about that. So I was working on an audiobook there, and uh, I said, hey, yeah, I've been working on... There was a big release of, a release of a big game, Baldur's Gate 3. They hadn't heard of it, but... They went back and said to their, uh, excuse me, their other half, oh yeah, I'm working with an actor who's uh, who's played a, a role in um, quite a you know significant role in Baldur's Gate 3. 
And he said, oh, it's only the biggest game ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. It is one of them. The yeah. And you haven't heard it. Okay. <laughs> but if you're not in that, if you're not in that world, but if you are, it's immense. I mean, the cast is amazing. And there's a whole family, actually. There's a Baldur's Gate 3 family, it seems, that, uh, you know, the companions and uh, other characters. I think I feel very privileged to be a part of it. I haven't mm. been in a game like this. I feel I've been very lucky to to have been invited to play Raphael, who's made such an impression. You know, he's a character I feel I feel very comfortable playing and enjoy playing, and I feel very lucky to be asked to play him because because there's so much fun to play. Revel in the devil. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about narration because I know you do a lot of audiobooks as well. How mm. close is the narration process to to booth acting? Is there a sort of acting flair attached to it? Absolutely. In an audiobook, you're creating a whole world. And that's the world not only of the writer, the, the narrator, but also you're creating every, every character in there. It's up to the actor to decide how much they're going to characterize, whether they just shade or color the characters, or whether they're really going to inhabit them or invest them vocally with extraordinary vocal characteristics. I did a, a series, an, an epic fantasy series. You might know a writer called Tad Williams, an American writer. He's written two or three trilogies, and I am the voice of, well, the first the first book in the trilogy is The Dragonbone Chair. I've forgotten the name of the group name for the, the trilogy, but there is, we're, onto the, we're onto about the third trilogy now. And they were a major influence on George R. R. Martin. He mm. cites he cites these novels as major influences. So the first one was written in the 90s. And over the last seven or eight years, I've been recording these Tad Williams books. And it's, it, it's a sort of, it's a medieval world inhabited by all sorts of characters. It's partly Arthurian legend, but it's also Norse mythology. There are trolls and there's a whole immortal immortal characters the fairy characters and there are many warring factions warring worlds so i'm probably also describing game of thrones <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar but i am i am creating the world through my voice and i've given voice to all these characters it would be very difficult for someone else to come in and take over where i've left off because well, because it's a car, it's hundreds, if not a thousand different characters through the course of the books. The books are about 35 to 40 recorded hours. Each book takes about two weeks in studio, at least two weeks to prepare. And, and really, you're, you're dealing with multiple narratives within that. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Probably it didn't, you know, I made decisions with some voices that probably was not the right decision if I'm thinking of longevity. I probably should have made easier choices for myself. <laughs> Creating the voice of fairy immortals, you know, immortal characters who, who are the way they're described, you know, you have to find a voice for them. So I've tried I tried to take a lot of bass tone out of my voice and create them as, you know, light, ethereal creatures. But that's exhausting uh, to sustain. <laughs> You're reading this for a whole day in studio and by the end of it. It's like running a marathon I when can you do that. a book like that. In fact, any order. All audiobooks have their challenges, different challenges. You know, whatever you, you know, you think I mean, this this will be easy. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> I can only imagine having to work through all the pronunciation of all the names. Yeah, getting on top of all the pronunciations, even in a epic fantasy where you know I'm creating. How am I going to pronounce this? So long as you're consistent, it's fine. But you but you have to remember someone has to mark it. 
and I get the producer now to capture it. So can we go back? How am I saying this? Oh, right, okay. And then what character voice did I use for this character who we encountered three days ago and 300 pages back? <laughs> Trying to keep tabs on it is in, encyclopedic. Oh, this character appeared in book three of the series. Did he? Did he? Wait a minute. <laughs> I have a dim recollection. What year was that? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Andrew, uh, what would you say is the best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you? Best acting advice? Well, that's a, that's a tricky one. Maybe I should say I've yet to receive it. <laughs> that's a good I'm, answer. <laughs> I'm still learning. Every time... I go out there on stage or into a studio, I'm learning something. There are all sorts of stories. There's no one piece of advice, but it all goes back to searching for the truth and and finding the rhythm, I think. It's the rhythm of truth, the rhythm of the character, the rhythm of the verse. If it's Shakespeare, you've got a heartbeat propelling you. It's the heartbeat of humanity. But you've got to be humble before the text i think you have to respect the text and 90 percent of acting i was once told 90 percent is listening and that's really important on stage because it's focus it's concentration and being in the moment you listen to and you respond but but you stay in the moment that's the tr that's about the truth as well and there's an interesting crossover with with sport i was having a conversation the other day when a tennis player is in the zone or a darts player we've had an amazingly successful 16 year old darts player this week how you cut out all negative influences and just stay positive and stay focused so if you make a mistake or something you can't dwell on that you've got to let that go because if you brood on that you're going to make another mistake so if you fluff a line Put it behind you. Stay on the moment. Stay on where you are. Be truthful in that moment. Don't think about that, what you, what's just happened. Let it go. And that's true of any sports player, I think. You've got to shut out everything that's negative and stay with everything that's positive. Just trust your fellow actors, trust your writer, the writing, and trust your instinct. That's another huge thing, especially in games, because we don't get an awful lot of time to prepare. I'm very used to going into a studio with little or no preparation. I can't think of, that certainly wouldn't happen in an audio book. You have to be really prepared. And in theatre too, the, that's what the rehearsal process is all about. But with games, there's an awful lot about being free to be instinctive, to unlock a character just by experimenting, playing, try this, try that. Let's Problems, actually a lot of acting is in the rehearsal room, but in the studio, it's problem solving. Now, why isn't this working? Let's figure it out. How can we find a way to make this work? Try this for this guy. How about this? Would this work? Give me some clues as to this character, what you're looking for. Okay, let me give you some, how about this? How about that? Well, that doesn't work? Well, let's try Try it this way. It's great fun. We're so lucky as actors. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so, uh, have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Wow. Wow. Or an experience you can't explain if you don't like those words. Yeah, that's, that's something I can't explain. I can remember once when I was a kid, and probably in that sort of phase where I imagined ghosts everywhere behind every... I remember a tape recorder switched on completely un... I mean, I was nowhere near it. It was in another room, but it switched on. I thought, well, that's weird. Maybe I didn't switch it off properly. Maybe the, you know, you try to rationalize it, but it was a bit spooky. There's another occasion when a door to a room I was in, a bedroom, was locked and the key was on the outside. Well, why, why was the key on the outside? I don't know. Someone's trying to lock me in, maybe. It was momentary, but for sure, I couldn't get out of that room. 
that door was locked and the key was not on my side. And this was the middle of the night. Now that, that takes some explaining. And then suddenly it was open. Now both those things happened in the same building. Now that's something I can't explain to this day. And now I'm, you, now you're scaring me, Justin. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's getting dark here, you know. It doesn't get light much these days in January in the UK. They, those were weird, weird things. And I haven't thought about them in a long time. What was it? Was it the house you were living in? Was it your grandmother's house? Or? Yeah, yeah, I was living there, and it's an old building. So sure, there there may be maybe an energy there that I I was aware of or that um, was present, but it's oh. not a it's not a I, I don't get spooked really now there. I'm still I still go there. It's not uh, it's not a it's not a place full of bad memories or but there may be something that goes back into the past some some energy that i can't explain or account for i've not had i don't think i've had any any more recent these 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 happened years ago well those certainly count andrew to put a bow on everything here is there anything on the horizon that you can share without getting in trouble <laughs> there isn't much i can share actually <laughs> no, no i i and i i do a radio program a run a long-running radio show here i've been in it 21 years it's been running for 70 it, it, it's um, an institution here called The Archers. It's on pretty much almost every day in the UK. It's about a community set in the Midlands. But I've no great revelation to offer there. And even if I did, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, would, I would spoil it for you. Understood. <laughs> I appreciate you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Appreciate you. Big fan. Uh, Justin, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun chatting to you. Yeah, I'd like to chat to you some more about because movies and I know you're a big movie fan as well as music and awesome. Yeah, next time we do it, we'll we have the we have our springboard episode done and we'll be diving deep next time. <laughs> you have a great rest of your day. I'll send this uh, down the line a link down the line when I have it posted and all that good stuff. Excellent. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Justin. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Andrew. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>